Greetings. You can find the passage on page 1781 of the Pew Bibles, 1781. And as Captain Walker was saying, Paul is talking about how to live in a multicultural society and recognizing the bounds of our freedom as privileged Christians. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Peter, and good morning, everyone. If we ever met before, my name's Carl. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church only. So let me add my welcome to Jonathan's to you this morning. I've got one quick notice before we go any further this morning. It's Mark Green's last Sunday with us. This Sunday before Mark heads back to South Africa to join his family over there. If you know Mark, you might like to say goodbye to him this morning as he heads away. Uh, I'll just let you know where we're up to in our series at the moment. We are, we've been looking at the, the, the letter to the Corinthian church, Paul's letter, for a number of weeks now. We have one more week left in this little series looking at 1 Corinthians. Next week we're going to be looking at the first few verses in chapter 11. It's a very difficult passage. I'd encourage you to have a read of that this week and then uh, pray that you'd have good ears to listen next week and that uh, God would help me as I try and teach what that passage says. Uh, and then after, we've, uh, after that, we're, we're turning back to the start of Luke's gospel, and we're going to be uh, reading the, the story of the birth of Jesus in the run-up to Christmas. And we're going to stick with Luke's gospel right through uh, our summer time together. So that's where we're going as a church. And today we're looking at the passage that Peter just read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to start this morning by asking Cameron to put the photo of the man up on the screen behind me here. I think probably all of you recognize who this is. Of course, this is Michael Jordan, the uh, 
National Basketball Association website says that by acclamation, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. And if you agree with that, perhaps you follow basketball, but they say he's the greatest basketball player of all time. I understand that he has won the NBA Most Valuable Player Award five times. His list of accomplishments in the basketball world, it'd take me all 20 minutes to read through it, it seems like. In 2016, even, uh, President Barack Obama back then awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the, the, the highest civilian award that you can get in America. And they say that he has a, a rough estimated net worth of about $3 billion. I want to suggest this morning that you could say that Michael Jordan was born to play basketball. Six feet, six inches tall, with a remarkable talent. Looks like he was born to play the game that he plays. And it's easy to look at someone like Michael Jordan and just say that they must have been born for that role, born for that task. You could probably say a similar thing in the, in the world of tennis if you think about someone like Roger Federer or in soccer perhaps it's someone like Messi. There's lots of people who would say they were born for what they do. And this morning I want to ask you a question and that is what do you think you were born to do? What were you born for? Sometimes I, I, I think about this in my own life. What was I born for? You know, for me, mechanical things seem to make sense. I, in some ways, I think I was born to be an engineer. In my house, my kids say that I am both a fixer and a maker. For me, quality time is spent with my power tools. That's how I kind of enjoy life in a sense. But the truth of the matter is that if I think back even on the things that I've built, the things that I've made, a lot of my projects have earned up, ended up in the bin. There have been things that I've been unable to fix. But what is it for you? What, what is it do you think you were born for? I'm asking you this question today because I think this passage helps us to see the answer to that. I think this passage reminds us as followers of Jesus, we were born for a particular task. It's there in verse 31 of our passage. If you haven't already opened your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at verse 31. This is what it says. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, some of our youth are sitting here. That They went to a camp, I think a couple of years ago now, where they spent the, a part of the camp thinking through the first question from the Westminster Catechism. Some of the kids might remember what that was. The first question says this, what is the chief end of man? And by that they mean mankind or all people. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so here's what I want to suggest, that our primary aim or our chief purpose in life, what we were born for, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what the Catechism says, and it makes reference to this verse that we've been looking at. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Did you realize you were born to glorify God, to bring Him glory? In this last 
chapter that we're looking at at the moment, chapter 10, so over the last chapter, Paul has been wrapping up a discussion that he's had now since chapter 8. He's been urging and encouraging the Corinthian church to correct their thinking when it comes to idols and food that has been sacrificed to idols. Since the start of chapter chapter 8, Paul has been speaking about this topic. And now he's concluding this section, reminding the church that their, their job, their purpose, their aim is to glorify the one and only God. He's been saying that the Christian God is the real God and idols, well, they're, they're nothing, he's been saying. They're just things that are made out of stone or things that are made out of wood or maybe gold. They're inanimate objects. And so, Paul's been saying, when it comes to eating food that's been sacrificed to those idols, he says, well, essentially, go ahead, knock yourself out, as meat, eat as much as you want, because it's not as though the meat has been contaminated with germs or anything like that. Go for it, he's saying. Feel free to eat. But he's also given them some concessions. And I want you to see that those concessions really are about looking after the people around you and bringing glory to God. In our passage today that that Peter read to us, Paul puts forward a specific example. What are you to do if if you sit down for a meal with unbelieving friends, if they invite you for dinner? How are you to behave? For the Christians of the church in Corinth, the the concern for them was what to do if food has been offered to idols. In our case, it's probably unlikely that that's going to be our concern as we sit down to share a meal with friends. But have you ever given any thought to how you should behave or how you should act if you're invited around to someone else's house for a meal? I want you to see that in this passage, I think Paul gives us two rules or two principles that help shape our actions when we're dining with with friends, particularly non-Christian friends. His scenario is a a meal, and that's something that we might have today. Here are the two rules that I think Paul gives us, two guiding principles for us. The first is this, is your behaviour beneficial to others? Or put another way, does your behaviour, does it serve others? Is it helping those around you? And the second of these principles is this, does your behaviour, do your actions glorify God? Two principles. Okay, let's dig in to the passage and I want you to see where these, these principles come from. Uh, Peter, remind us the passage is on page 1781 of your Bibles. And in verse 23, we pick up what Paul's saying. And he seems to be quoting back to the Corinthians something that they have been saying to him. It looks like they've been saying, I have the right to do anything. Now, it could be that this is a saying of the Corinthians that sort of was part of their culture. You know, in South Australia, we have a saying that's part of our culture, isn't it? It's that heaps good phrase. We all know what it means. It's something particular to us. It could be that this is something that the Corinthians were saying, I have the right to do anything. But my guess is actually that the Corinthians here are repeating something that Paul taught them when he planted this church, when he planted the church in Corinth. I reckon he'd been teaching them then that they have freedom in the gospel and that the way of the Jewish law no longer applies in quite the same way. And it seems that the Corinthians have latched on to that particular teaching of Paul And they've latched onto that idea about having freedom. 
And so the premise is not wrong. This is probably something that Paul taught them himself. But Paul's showing they can take things too far. They can overstep the mark. They might have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. They might have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. I think we know know how this works in our world today as well. Let me give you an example. When I was growing up, I had a set bedtime. At one stage, it was 7 p.m. and then a little bit later, maybe 7.30 and then 8 o'clock and so on. Today, as an adult, it probably doesn't surprise you, but I've got no set bedtime today. I'm free to go to bed any time I want. If I want to stay up every night until it starts to get light again in the early morning, I can do that. I have the freedom to do it. But it's not necessarily going to be beneficial, is it? For me, that would not be constructive. Going to bed so late at night would be just unhelpful. Not sinful, you see, but unhelpful. And staying up late at night, it wouldn't be wise for me to do in terms of myself, but I reckon it would be even worse for those around me. Because if I'm really tired, I'm much more likely to be grumpy and short and angry with those around me. And so here's Paul's point of view. Can you see what he's saying? We have freedom as Christians, freedom from the Jewish law, but that doesn't mean that everything that we're allowed to do is necessarily beneficial. And so Paul provides the Corinthians with some guiding principles that, that help them make sense of how they're to live in this world of freedom. We see the first of those principles in verse 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. I want to suggest that this is, this is countercultural for us today. Our culture so often tells us to seek our own needs first, to prioritize ourselves. Our culture so often tells us that the self comes first. But Paul wants the church in Corinth to be different, to, to be set apart from the, the rest of the world around me, to be characterized as a sort of people who seek the good of others first. Let me ask you, how are you doing at being like that at the moment? In what ways are you actively seeking the good of others? If you're part of a family, how are you seeking the good of others in your family? It's hard work, isn't it, doing this, putting others first, but it's what Paul is is asking us to do. If you uh, have a job in a workplace... How are you putting others first in the workplace? When that terrible shift comes up that nobody wants to do, are you ever the one who volunteers to do it? In every workplace, there are are jobs that no one likes doing, aren't there? Do you ever do those tasks? Are you the one who tackles the toner in the photocopier when it runs out, right? That's sort of a job. Or you might be part of a sporting team. When do you give others opportunity to shine in the sporting team? Or do you always take those opportunities? Are you seeking the good of others above your own? In verse 25 to 30, Paul, Paul picks up on this idea of seeking the good of others. and specifically applies it to how we might behave when, when eating with others. In verse 25 to 26, he reminds us of his earlier point. He says, idols are nothing and God is everything. So it says this, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
Paul's been saying this now for a few chapters, hasn't he? Idols are nothing. And instead, God is everything. And Paul here quotes from Psalm 24, where the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God is the one who's sovereign and real and in control, and he's given food to be eaten. And so, says Paul, you can eat of that food without concern, even if it's been sacrificed. But Paul's reiterating, isn't he, to the Corinthians, they have freedom to eat. And they can do that without asking questions. He's saying, when you go and buy food from the marketplace, I think, you don't need to quiz the seller. You don't need to quiz the butcher to see where the meat came from. I mean, we might do that today. The questions we might be asking our our butcher might be, is that beef grain-fed or grass-fed, and how many days has it been aged for? I take it they were probably asking questions of their butchers, has this meat been sacrificed to idols? And Paul says, you don't need to do that because idols are nothing. But he puts a condition on it, doesn't it? Doesn't he? Put others before yourself. And here's the scenario, he says. If an unbeliever, a a non-Christian, asks you to join them for a meal, how do you respond? And notice he gives them freedom. He says, you don't have to go. If you don't want to go, don't go. But if you like the person and you want to take them up on the invite, you don't feel threatened to go, go. And feel free to eat whatever is put before you in that meal. But if during that meal someone announces that that one of the meats or one of the dishes was offered previously as a sacrifice, then things change, says Paul. Paul says you shouldn't eat the meat for the sake of conscience. Now, as you're reading through this, whose conscience do you think Paul's referring to here? I think the, the one thing is clear, it's not... Your own conscience at this point that's uh, maybe at trouble? No. I reckon we can read it in two ways. First, I think we can assume that there are kind of three people enjoying this meal. You, the host, and and another Christian person. And in that case, when you're eating that food that you know has now been sacrificed, you might be weakening the conscience of the other Christian person with you. Well, the second way I think we can read this is to see that there's just two people in this meal, you and the host, And it's the host conscience that's being damaged. Because in continuing to eat this meal, you're not showing any difference between you and the non-believer. I'm not exactly sure which of these views Paul has in mind. But what I want you to see is that Paul says, you have freedom to eat of this meat. But as soon as someone says, it's been sacrificed, Paul says it becomes a potentially harmful situation. Stop. Stop eating. Not for your own good, but for the good of others. Now, it might be a great meal. It might taste terrific. This might be uh, a Wagyu steak that's cooked to perfection over some uh, hot coals. But if eating it causes others to stumble, says Paul, then serve those around you. might mean not eating the meal altogether, or it might be as simple as just avoiding the lamb and taking the chicken dish instead. But here's the principle, the service of others. And so when faced with a dinner invitation, Paul's encouragement is, keep in mind those around you. Look for their benefit rather than your own. Now, I imagine that many of us in the coming few weeks are going to enjoy meals out. You're going to be invited to other people's houses. How do you think you apply the principles that Paul is speaking about here 
into the context of our own world today? How do you put others first when you dine with them? It might be that you have to skip on a particular piece of Wagyu meat. That's probably unlikely for us today. But what you might be able to do is stay back after the meal and serve your host by helping them to clean up. Can you be better at looking after those around you and serving them in practical ways? Can you give up on your own desires in order to please those around you? That's the first rule, serving those around you. Let's move on to the second dinner party rule, and we see that there in verse 31 of this passage. Let me read it to you. So whenever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Paul's initial instruction in this passage had been to seek the good of others, but here's the foundational principle, I think, for the Christian life. Seek to glorify God. It's what we've been created for, to bring glory to God. It's more than an instruction, just as how do we behave when we're eating a meal. I want you to see this as almost a motto for our whole life. But it also has real practical implications for how we would share a meal. So let me ask you, what do you think it means to glorify God? How do you do that practically in life? As we try and answer that question, I think we need to start by remembering that it is God himself who is glorious. God is the one who is truly glorious. He is the most glorious thing in the universe that he himself created. And so to glorify God means in some way to reflect his glory back to him. Years and years ago, I worked in a, in a really big factory and I had a very small office that was dimly lit, had a small light globe in it and a tiny window. And the office was kind of right next door to a giant white concrete area. And so on a bright sunny day, when I opened the door of my office and I stepped out into the bright white concrete area, it was so bright, I felt like my eyes couldn't handle it. I was overwhelmed by the brightness of the light around me. I often think this must have been a bit what it was like for Moses when he saw God, when he saw the glory of God, that overwhelming brightness that we sometimes see when the sun's shining brightly. And that idea of the glory of God, the brightness of the sun, I think it helps us to think a little bit what it might be like to reflect some of God's glory back to him. Now, of course, we don't do this with real mirrors do we but reflecting God's glory must involve beaming back some of his goodness some of his strength some of his justice and his peace and his love and his compassion the Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God and so we are supposed to reflect what he looks like in some way and Paul tells us that we're to do this at all times Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And it's a good rule at a dinner party, isn't it? Are your actions reflecting the glory of God? Is your behavior reflecting the glory of God? Now, for the Corinthian church, that meant eating meat in a way that wouldn't damage or hurt or ruin the person next to you. That's about how they bring glory to God. What does it look like for us today? I wonder. You know, maybe it would mean when we're 
enjoying a meal with others, that we wouldn't behave in a way that's inappropriate, wouldn't drink so much that we don't bring glory to God. Or we wouldn't tell crass jokes that don't bring glory to God. Or maybe it also means we wouldn't sit at a table in a sullen, grumpy mood, pretending or hoping that we were back in our room playing a computer game or reading a book. Maybe that's part of how we would reflect God's glory when we join in a meal with others. And I think we reflect God's glory when we demonstrate what his character is like. We can do that when we're sharing a meal. But not only that, I want you to see this is our chief end in life. This is what we were made for. It's not just what we do when we're eating with others. We're to reflect glory in all of our life, at all times, because we've been made in God's image, made to look like Jesus. I wonder if you can stop over the next few days and consider how your resemblance to Jesus is going. Are you behaving like him? Are you doing things in a way that reflect God's glory? Are you looking like Jesus? I want to suggest that if we look this way, that'll make us different to the world around us. Remember, Paul's been writing to the Corinthian church, a church that he calls as holy and set apart to be different. Now, they haven't got it all together, but he's calling them holy and he wants them to be different to the world around him. Paul's example here is don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols if it's going to cause damage to others. Just move past it. Get into the pavlova, forget the lamb. It's that kind of thing. And in doing so, those around you might say, hey, what's wrong with you? Why are you not eating the lamb? It might make you a bit uncomfortable. But I think Paul's saying that's what it means to be set apart, to be holy. And we're to do that for the glory of God. Do you remember 1 Corinthians is a letter? It's all about how the grace of God and the gospel changes the way that we live. And Paul wants us to be concerned with God's glory. But did you notice, this is the last thing I want to see this morning, he's also concerned that others would come to know Jesus. He says, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Can you see here Paul's heart for those who, who don't yet know Jesus? I think this is a really timely reminder for us as a church. We're, we're approaching that, that part of the year, that season where our society as a whole pauses and stops and reflects and remembers the birth of Jesus. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to be engaging with others, to be serving those around us joyfully, to be praying for them, to be living in a way that glorifies God so that they too might be saved. Paul ends this section by giving us an example. Here's what I want you to think. If you wanted to be a great basketball player, then I reckon a terrific person to follow would be Michael Jordan. It would be great, wouldn't it, to study his training methods and to see how he plans out what he's going to do. You might even copy the way that his dietary plans. You might eat like him. You might dress like him, wear his shoes, those sorts of things. I reckon many of you will have tried that in the past. Paul knows that following examples is really helpful. 
He also knows that what we are to do in life, though, is to serve others and to reflect God's glory. And so he says to us that the example we follow should be Jesus. And I want want to leave you with just this last verse then of, of what Paul says. He says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's what he wants for us, what he wants for us as a church today. Let me pray that we'd be able to do that. Father God, we thank you for the freedom that we have in the, in the gospel. Thank you that you uh, have given us freedom to live life free of the Jewish system of laws. But we ask that you would help us to both enjoy our freedom, but also to be people who seek to serve those around us. That you would help us to be people who reflect your glory back to you not just in the way that we eat with others, but in the way that we live our lives. And Father, we ask that you would help us to do that by continually showing us through your word the way in which your son lived. And we ask that you would help us to model our lives, to follow his example, to seek to be like him. And it's in his name we pray this morning. Amen.